I began uh, last week's sermon with the possibly, although not necessarily, hypothetical story of how one Chinese villager's scuffle with a pangolin may have led to our current worldwide pandemic. And maybe you've heard of the, the so-called butterfly effect, the idea that a butterfly flapping its wings right here in the United States could, could cause a hurricane halfway around the world. And while the science to back up that particular claim uh, may be dubious, uh, history certainly contains any number of examples of one seemingly small, insignificant event leading to a chain reaction of massive proportions. I think, for example, of one of the most popular um, theories for the origin of Adolf Hitler's anti-Semitism uh, is that as a young man, uh, Hitler may have contracted an STD from a Jewish prostitute. And the thought that a one-night stand may have indirectly led to the genocide of six million Jews in the biggest war in human history. That's just one example. We're now a month into our study this year through the book of Genesis. And two weeks ago, we considered together chapter 3, the story of the fall, uh, Adam and Eve's infamous and tragic fall away from right relationship with God and from the paradise of the Garden of Eden by virtue of their sinful choice to reject God as their Lord over their lives. And last week, we began our examination part one of the fallout, the aftermath, the domino effect of the viral and devastating chain reaction that ensued because of that one seemingly tiny, insignificant decision to taste a bite of fruit. And specifically, we analyzed the story of Cain's envious murder of his brother Abel, and we highlighted 17 qualities of sin that make it so devious and so destructive. Sin, we found out, is genetic. It's in our DNA now, original sin. It's rebelliousness. It defies confrontation. It blinds us and hardens our hearts. Sin seeks to rule us. It leads to jealousy and self-justifying. It hates righteousness and necessitates hiding. It requires lying and drives isolation. It becomes inescapable over time and has vast unintended consequences. It rejects punishment, breeds fear and shame, and begets even more sin, all of which ultimately, and worst of all, results in our separation from God. And yet, number 17, quality number 17 from last week, at the very end of Cain's curse, we got a glimpse of hope in verse 15 that God meets our sin, yes, with his justice, but also with his grace. Even Cain was spared the instant death that his sin earned him. In fact, the Lord put a mark, we hear, on Cain to protect him. This is undeserved mercy. And this morning in part two, we're going to see that in the rest of Genesis chapter four, that despite God's grace and his mercy, Cain's refusal to repent and therefore receive God's forgiveness will have dire consequences not only for his own life, but for all in his lineage. Cain's children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren. We, we read uh, last week in Numbers 14, 18, how God visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. And in Cain's case, it was to the seventh generation. We've got seven generations here of sinners climaxing in the most wicked of all, Lamech. 
But God's good plan for humanity will not be thwarted by even the most wicked of sinners. And so in chapter 5, we're going to see once again God's gracious answer to our growing problem of sin in the line of Seth, a third son for Adam and Eve. And yet we will discover that by the beginning of chapter 6, even God's, what are we up to now, third addition to his rescue plan, God graciously sacrificed for Adam and Eve after their sin in chapter 3, then he graciously placed a mark on Cain's head at the beginning of chapter 4. And this morning he's going to graciously raise up the line of Seth in chapters 4 and 5. And yet even that merciful intervention will prove insufficient to secure humanity's obedience and our devotion that God rightly deserves. And sin will reach its pinnacle on the earth in chapter 6 with the creation of this entirely new, utterly corrupted race of people, the Nephilim. And so God, out of love and out of a longing to protect and preserve humanity, will be forced to resort to the nuclear option in chapters 6 through 9, the flood. But we get ahead of ourselves, so if you have a Bible with you, uh, if you want to open and turn with me to chapter Four of the book of Genesis. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. You can follow along. Um, we'll put the slides up on uh, the screen for you. Um, but we would love to, once again, send you a free Bible as, uh, as our gift to you uh, if you leave us your, your mailing address. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 17. And um, while you're finding it, I invite you to just pray with me over our study here together. Heavenly Father, would you now, as you uh, so inspired these words to be written thousands and thousands of years ago, would you come uh, once again now, Holy Spirit, and inspire our study, our interpretation, our application of your word. Uh, God, in the midst, as we've sung this morning already, of a, a swirling sea of chaos and confusion a world that feels like nothing but sinking sand. We need a firm foundation. We need a, a sure and steady anchor for our souls. God, we thank you that we have it in your son Jesus and in your word, these holy inspired scriptures. And so, Father, as we seek now to um, submit ourselves under the authority of your word, we pray that you would open our hearts Soften our hearts, open our minds to hear, to see, to uh, experience and apply, make relevant in our own daily lives the truths of your perfect word. We pray this for our edification, God, and for your glory, ultimately, we pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, Genesis chapter 4, verse 17, we'll start. And if you would um, stand with me at home uh, as you're able for the reading of, of God's Word. Uh, we're going to take this in, in, in sections, and I won't make you go up and down and up and down. Uh, but you can stand at least for this first section, uh, verses 17 through uh, 24 here of, of Genesis 4. Hear the word of the Lord. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mehujael, and Mehujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. 
And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. And Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, in my introduction, I just gave you basically our outline for this morning, the recurring pattern that we see emerging here all throughout Scripture. God graciously provides something wonderful for us, for humanity, and then we infect it with our own sin, whatever that thing is, and then God responds with even more undeserved grace. That's the cycle. And we saw that already with Adam and Eve in uh, chapters 1 through 3. God graciously provided them with a perfect world. What do they do? Their sin infects that world with death. And then uh, in turn, God graciously provides sacrifice as a means for reconciliation with him. Toward the end of chapter 3, he covers them in the, the, the hides of these animal carcasses that he has uh, sacrificed for them as an atonement. But by chapter 4, Cain's sin has already infected even God's provision of sacrifice. Cain screws up the sacrificial uh, gift system that, that God had given them to make themselves right with God. And so we concluded last week with God's refusal to give up on humanity and God's gracious provision of society. That's where we pick up this morning. God provides society. That was chapter 4, verse 14. Cain's fear in his primitive tribal world that he lived in is that being banished from his home, from his people, his curse to be a fugitive and a wanderer all the days of his life, that kind of isolation will most certainly lead to his death. He says, God, whoever finds me will kill me. But God promises him in verse 15, not so. And we discover in verse 17 that God fulfills his promise of protection to Cain to preserve Cain's life, at least in part by providing Cain with a new family, with a new people, his own tribe, his own lineage. We might call this the birth of human civilization, the birth of human society and culture. So look back with me. At verse 17, we hear Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Now, let's stop right there. Already, in verse 17, we discover that God's provision of society has been infected with sin, with Cain's sin. How did he sin? Where do I see sin in verse 17? Cain sinned by building a city. God had cursed him to be a nomad, to be a wanderer. But Cain is determined. Cain will go to his grave, rejecting God's plan in favor of his own plan. And so Cain attempts to build himself a city. 
he rejects once again God's calling on his life. And, he, and I say he attempts to build himself a city, and he went to his grave trying because the text here hints at the fact that Cain wasn't actually able to complete the building project. It's part of his curse. I mean, God's calling is going to prevail over the plans of man every time. He wasn't able to complete the building project. Cain never owned this city. John MacArthur points out that in the ancient world, it was typical to name a city after the person who owned it. And so we see this in Deuteronomy 3.14, in 2 Samuel 5.9, David conquers and then names the city David after himself, a real humble guy. Um, 2 Samuel 12.28, but here Cain names the world's first city not after himself, but after his son, Enoch. And Enoch's name means dedicate. And so Cain dedicates the city to him. Now, the Bible does not give us uh, very much information on gener- uh, generations three through six here in Cain's lineage. And so we really uh, have to go off of, uh, all, all we really have to go off of in tracing the progression of sin, this viral spread of our universal human sickness, is the meaning of the names that we find in Cain's lineage. Now, this is admittedly somewhat speculative, but we know that biblically names are really important, okay? And I think this is really interesting, all right? So Enoch, as I said, means to dedicate. Erod, his son, means of the city. Now, godly characters throughout the Bible are often described as being a man of the Lord. But here we've got Erod being described as a man of the city, Tim Keller defines an idol as a good thing that we make into the ultimate, ultimate thing. God has gifted Cain with society, with family, with others, with a people, as a good gift for his protection. But here already within two generations, we see that the city, civilization, society has become the ultimate thing for Iran, for Cain's line. Verse 18 Erod fathered Mahujael. Mahujael means God blots out. And again, some speculation here, but based on his name, I have to wonder if God didn't finally visit Cain's iniquity on his fourth generation here with Mahujael, and if God blotted out the city that Cain's line had become so idolatrously attached to. And then Mahujael fathered Methushael, which means violence of God. Without the protective grace now of civilization, no city, man falls once again back into violence as he had in the days of Cain. And his violence worsens and worsens until it ultimately culminates in the character of Lamech, which means conqueror or strong man. And that is a perfect name and description for Lamech because he epitomizes Frederick Nietzsche's ideal of the Ubermensk, the overman. Nietzsche, you may recall from your intro to philosophy class back in college, was the famous uh, turn of the 20th century philosopher who first declared that God is dead. In other words, the idea of God, which had served humanity uh, for a variety of practical functions amongst primitive man, uneducated, unenlightened man for many millennia, you know, God had explained how we got here, why we ought to behave and try and be nice to each other. The idea of God, you know, to the extent that we did behave, told us where we would spend the afterlife. That was comforting. But Nietzsche recognized that Darwin, 
by the end of the 19th century, had given us a new explanation for the origins of life, that the Industrial Revolution had given us a new ethic, money over people, and the Enlightenment had called into question the very existence of anything supernatural. If you can't see it, taste it, or touch it, don't trust it. That's rationalism, empiricism. And so by the, the dawn of the 20th century, Nietzsche was ready to pronounce God dead. And rising out of the ashes to take his place was Nietzsche's overman. Our new godless world required an entirely new value system. And the ethic of the overman is characterized by the will to power. If the Bible's hero is Jesus, the self-sacrificing servant who laid down his divine power in order to suffer and die for others, then Nietzsche's hero is the Antichrist, the anti-Jesus, a self-made conqueror who steps on whoever he needs to in order to rise above and to dominate over others. This is Lamech, the conqueror, the strong man. There's nothing new under the sun, right? He doesn't just exert the will to power over others. Lamech brags about it. He sings about it, in fact. Verses 23 through 24 here is Hebrew poetry. It's the first song in human history. It's a boast over human sin. Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. He is lustful, he's a polygamist, he's a chauvinist, murderous, vengeful, ambitious rebel against the true God and king of the universe. This is all suggested, if not outright stated, here in these two verses. Lamech is lustful. Uh, I think that's suggested by the names of his wives, Ada and Zillah. They mean pretty and sweet-voiced, respectively. In other words, uh, Lamech is a superficial objectifier of women. He's the first polygamist in history. Now remember, God has not made a lot of rules by this point. Not a lot of rules out there, but one of them that was very clear in Genesis chapter 2, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, singular, and they shall become one flesh. You go outside of that, outside of God's design for marriage in Scripture, you don't have to look very far to see how it turned out for Abraham. Right? Abraham's extramarital affair with Hagar is... The reason there is the nation of Islam today for Jacob, the whole Leah versus Rachel uh, feud split Jacob's family. For King David, David's desire for multiple women led to his downfall. King Solomon, his many wives led him into idolatry and ultimately split the entire nation of Israel. Every time we see polygamy in the Bible, it leaves nothing but chaos and ruin in its wake. Lamech is a chauvinist. He flaunts God's curse of our gendered uh, relationships from uh, Genesis chapter 3 by being domineering over his wives. He bosses them around. He's murderous and vengeful. He brags about killing a young man to get revenge. And he's ambitious. Notice he has turned God's protective promise of justice for Cain into his own vengeful boast. He says, I will personally get 11 times the vengeance of Cain for myself if anyone wrongs me. This is the will to power. This is Nietzsche's overman. And this is the man from whom we get 
Verse 20, Jabal, the originator of animal husbandry. Verse 21, Jubal, the creator of music. In verse 22, Tubal Cain, the inventor of tools and weapons. Metallurgy. Now, what's the point? What's the point of all this? Gordon Wenham explains in his commentary, by linking urbanization and nomadism, music and metalworking, that whole spectrum, all within the genealogy of Cain, God seems to be suggesting that all aspects of human culture are in some way tainted by Cain's sin. Every aspect of human society, civilization, God's common graces, his gifts to us for our sustenance, for our enjoyment of life, every aspect of them have now become marred by the effects of the fall. We surveyed some competing worldviews together on Easter in our sermon. Secular humanism proposes that we are progressing, we are over time evolving as a species, that we are the answer to the world's problems. The Bible could not disagree more adamantly. We see clearly here in Genesis chapter 4 just how much humanity has digressed, has devolved as a people, even within just a few generations of Adam's original sin. We are the problem. We're not the solution. But does God give up on us? Does God just say, forget it, I'll just go start another world? No. In his relentless love and his mercy, God graciously provides Eve with another offspring. We read in verse 25, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and she called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Now, don't forget God's promise that we studied on Easter from Genesis chapter 3, the glimmer of hope in the midst of the curse and the fall, the proto-euangelion, the first gospel presentation in all of Scripture from Genesis 3 verse 15, where God said, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, crush his head, You'll strike his heel, he's going to crush your head. Remember, God had promised a coming offspring of the woman, a singular descendant who will be bitten by the snake, but who will ultimately crush and destroy the serpent's head, defeat the curse of sin and death for good. Eve thought that maybe it would be Cain. She was promised an offspring. Cain is her firstborn. Maybe he'll fulfill that promise. But as he grew up, it became clear that instead of overcoming sin, Cain was himself becoming more and more mastered by it. So maybe it would be Abel, Eve's secondborn. Maybe he would become her serpent-crushing offspring, but then Cain kills him. But here in verse 25, hope is renewed for poor Eve. God has appointed for me another offspring, she rejoices. Maybe Seth will be her promised snake-stomping progeny. And at first, things look pretty promising. Within one generation, we hear that Seth has fathered Enosh. We hear at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. 
this is, this is encouraging. People are turning back to the Lord finally in repentance. So the timeline here is a little fuzzy, but Cain's line had a head start, and they've been populating the world with godless rebels for possibly up to two centuries now. But it isn't until Enosh in the line of Seth that we hear finally people are calling on the name of the Lord again. And so we're going to simply read here uh, from, from the end of chapter 4 and getting into all of chapter 5. I'm going to give you minimal commentary on chapter 5 because it's really just the genealogy of Seth's line. It helps fill in some of the blanks in the timeline for us. But most significantly, maybe, it starts by reiterating the most important takeaway from Genesis chapter 1, God's creation and imaging and blessing of man. It's almost like God is saying, hey, let's start over. I'm going to give you a fresh start with this other offspring, and yet there's going to be one new critical uh, change with this do-over. See if you catch it. We hear Genesis 5, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and he named them man when they were created. All sounds similar, sounds good so far. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. And see, there's the problem. Now we have Adam fathering children in his own image. God had made Adam and Eve directly in God's image, but from now on, man is cursed to be marked with both the image of God. We really do all, still to this day, even the vilest of sinners has a a spark of divinity, a pure, transcendent image of God laying within us, and yet it's buried now under layers and layers of Adam's image. Remember, we, we looked last week at Romans 5.12, the, the doctrine of original sin. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so sin, death spread to all men because all have sinned. And so you could probably tell already where this reboot of the story in Seth's line is headed. We hear verse 3, Adam fathered a son and named him Seth. And the days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Adam he lived were 930 years, and he died. Again, you're going to hear this common recurring refrain. He died, he died, he died. The curse of death, not yet broken. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 107 years. He had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years. He had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he had fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Now note this is a different Enoch 
from chapter 4. This is the Enoch in Seth's lineage, not Cain's. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And so that's new, right? Enoch is one of only two people ever who doesn't die. He gets up, you know, Enoch gets his own private rapture, just sucked right up into the clouds and started, he was walking with God on the earth, now he's walking with God in, in, in heaven. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. And again, this is a different Lamech. You know, it's, we're early on, they're running out of names, right? Um, they're not super creative yet, maybe, and so they're just renaming. This is Lamech. Uh, in Seth's line, this is the great, 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 great grandson of Seth, not the great, great, great grandson of Cain. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years, had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years. Bible trivia there, Methuselah, oldest person uh, ever in recorded history, and he died. And when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Okay, and so here it is again, a glimmer of hope. Maybe this offspring, maybe Noah, is going to be the one to break the curse of sin, finally. Specifically, the curse from chapter 3, that Adam would work the ground in pain all the days of his life, that the ground would bring forth thorns and thistles for him. Noah's father, Lamech, hopes, yeah, maybe he's going to break that. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years. He had other sons and daughters, and thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so chapter 5 closes on a hopeful note. God has provided another offspring, Seth, for Eve, and his lineage, unlike Cain's, is starting to look pretty good. You've got people calling on the name of the Lord again with Enosh. You've got Enoch, Walking with God and being personally spared from death, personal sparing from the curse of death. And now you've got this prophetic glimmer of hope with Noah, who if we allow ourselves to read ahead just a little bit, we hear in chapter 6, verse 9, that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So maybe he will at last be our long-awaited offspring of Eve who will finally bear and break the curse of sin for all people, for all time. But if chapter 5 ended hopefully, chapter 6 opens with a jarring report that Adam's sin, still running through Seth's veins too, is far more pervasive and destructive than we could have ever imagined. We hear that sin has now infected this promised other offspring's lineage as well in the most diabolical way of all. That far from progressing and evolving as a species, 
getting progressively better until the, the time of Noah, that actually by the time we get to Noah, we hear in chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things, birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Noah alone was righteous and found favor in the sight of the Lord. There are probably millions, some scholars say billions of people on the planet by this time, if you account for the long lifespans and for exponential population growth. But Noah alone, millions, billions of people, Noah alone was righteous and blameless, followed the Lord. This is the strongest statement of the depths of human depravity and the extent of sin in the entire Bible. Every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. How did it get that bad? How did it get that bad? We find out in verses 1 through 4, when man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, if you're like me, you ought to have at least seven questions that I counted coming out of just those four verses. Number one, who are the sons of God? Who, who in the world are these sons of God? Number two, who are the daughters of man? Number three, what does it mean that they took them as their wives? Number four, are humans really supposed to only live 120 years now? And if so, why do we know that some people live longer than that? Number five, who are the Nephilim? Number six, were they really still on the earth afterward, like after the flood? I thought only Noah and his, and his people survived. How are they on the earth afterward? And number seven, why are they called men of renown, of fame and repute? And some of y'all are going to be upset by this, but I'm not going to answer any of those questions this morning. I, I hope to be like a good storyteller and leave you with a cliffhanger ending here. And I want to plan to tackle just those four verses specifically and those seven questions specifically in this next week's episode of our Ask the Pastor podcast. Uh, before we ever began our study of Genesis, actually, back when we launched this podcast last year, this was one of the most popular questions that I received. Who in the world are the Nephilim? And so we're going to answer that later this week. But here's where I want to end things this morning. Listen, Abel was not the promised sin-defeating redeemer from Eve's offspring. Cain certainly wasn't. 
Seth was not the promised offspring. And spoiler alert, for two weeks from now, Noah is not going to be the redemptive seed of the woman that God promised in chapter 3. No, humanity would have to wait thousands and thousands of years more for that long-awaited Savior, Redeemer, but friends, the wait is over. His name is Jesus. And while we're on etymologies this morning, his name means he saves. The angel of the Lord came in Matthew one twenty one, announcing to Mary and Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is God's ultimate, final, once and for all time, gracious provision and answer for our sin problem. In his sacrificial, atoning death in our place on the cross, Jesus bore the curse of sin that had so long plagued humanity, and in his resurrection, he broke the power of sin and death forever. Do you know that? Do you know that this morning? Do you know that Jesus now holds the keys to hell and death? That Jesus has the authority to say, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That is an audacious statement. You don't have to die. Are you afraid of dying this morning, friends? Are you afraid of the coronavirus? Do you know that you don't have to be? Do you know that your physical death, whether, that, whether it happens tomorrow, whether it happens 80 years from now, 120 years from now, you don't have to fear death because death is a comma. It's not a period. And what comes after the comma will either be the most glorious, wonderful, breathtakingly amazing experience that you will laugh at yourself for ever trying so hard to hang on to life in this fallen world. You'll wish that God had taken you home sooner. Or, or you will spend the rest of eternity in agony, eternally separated from a God of life and joy and peace. You're going to live forever, one way or the other. My question for you this morning is, will you trust in Jesus to bear your sin, to bear your curse, and will you receive his offer of new life in him today?